we are a society that don't particularly produce things. So that most of our food, for instance, um, is grown by somebody else, um, packed by somebody else, goes to the supermarket or the shop through the agency of somebody else. The same is true of our clothing, our housing, all of those sorts of things. So, so a, a starting point is that we are historically unusual in that even in the world of today, the majority of people out there in the world produce quite a lot, maybe not everything, that they need um, in terms of food and housing and clothing and, and those sorts of things. So, so for us, we have a rather theoretical notion of what production involves, um, whereas for most people... Um, they have a much more hands-on notion of, of what it means to produce. So production is physically vital, unless there is someone out there producing our food, supplying us with drinking water, with shelter, with all of those sorts of things, we wouldn't survive. Um, but the more important point sociologically is that production is sociologically vital. So we need to meet our, our calorific uh, needs, we need shelter from <coughs> heat, cold, all of those sorts of things. But the ways in which those things are provided and the ways in which we, we understand those things as necessary vary from one society to another. And most societies, for much of the time, produce and consume over and above their basic needs. So, so the ways in which a society organises itself around the productive process helps us understand the general nature of that society and is important, basic to, to the nature of that society. And the second thing to think about is that the production is a physical process it involves taking raw materials and working on them until they become some sort of finished product or whatever. But also it's an existential process. In, in producing things, people develop skills, they develop capabilities, they produce themselves. So one of the key things that I want to, to put across and one of the key sorts of notions that, that, that uh, is important to anthropology and archaeology is that production is always a two-way process. That in producing the world, whatever, you know, all the things that are out there, people produce themselves. They, they produce various skills, various sensibilities, various understandings of the world. Um, so it's not just human beings acting on the world, it's, it's always a reciprocal process. <coughs> the academic study of production, as we'd understand it today, um, developed within the 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And what I'll do for, for the first part of the lecture is take you back through some of that early history of the 19th century um, and then look at notions of production which are a bit more recent before coming on to some brief case studies. So 19th century thought about production was influenced very heavily by the fact that Europe or North America, and this is where most of the main thoughts that come down to us today were developed, in Europe and North America, people were very heavily influenced by the then relatively new Industrial Revolution. 
and the Industrial Revolution, one could say a lot about the Industrial Revolution, but was about the reorganisation of production around notions of mass production and mass consumption. I'll come back a little bit to, um, to the Industrial Revolution its, and its intellectual and social effects in a while. So we should be aware that the historical genesis of ideas of production took place within a particular social, cultural, historical milieu where people were moving from a society where more people were self-sufficient to one in which, <coughs> more like our society today, where people became dependent upon the labour of others. The, the other aspect of, of 19th century thought, which is germane to notions of production, in fact germane to almost any notions of society, was that from the middle of the 19th century onwards, there was a considerable emphasis on evolutionary thought, um, that many people in Europe and North America came to see, Europe, uh, came to see human history as an evolutionary process, and basically a process from simple societies to complex societies. Now, we'll come back to that because many more recently have, have critiqued those notions, but, but this is where ideas of production came from. It's worth also saying um, that in the 20th century, people have emphasised consumption rather more than production, um, so a lot of anthropology these days is about consumption rather than necessarily production. So there has been an historical shift from an emphasis on production processes to, to the ways in which people consume things. And that again is, is um, in line with the fact that we are a consuming set of societies by and large rather than necessarily um, a producing set of societies. So I'm going to start my historical view of production with the thought of Karl Marx. Um, Marx wrote centrally on production and influenced a lot of other people, either positively or negatively, people who were inspired by Marx, people who reacted against his thought. But in either case, one, we need to know um, a bit about Marx's thought to understand the 19th century thoughts on production. <laughs> Marx um, was interested in subjects like economics, but he wanted to broaden out economics from his and other people's description of it as being the dismal science um, to looking at uh, a, a much more rounded notion of production and consumption. And this goes back to what I was saying before. Uh, he was influenced by philosophers like Hegel, who were interested in how, how people come to be, how people come to have the capabilities that they have, how people come to have an understanding of the world that they have. And Marx's thought was that, and, and his break with people like Hegel, Hegel was very much uh, a, 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 an intellectual and an intellectual historian. So Hegel thought that, that past thought influenced future thought, as it were, whereas Marx said that the, the ways in which people act in the world determines the way in which people think about the world. So Marx wanted a much more um, action-based notion of philosophy. Um, he, was, he was also interested... He obviously had a political intent... He wanted, uh, the thing that's written on Marx's gravestone is, is that he wanted not just to understand the world, but
but to change it. So he wanted to understand capitalism, how it had come to be, but he also wanted to, to change it. And, and his major critique of capitalism was that it was based on mass production, that it produced masses of stuff at unprecedented levels of physical production, but in the process it caused a narrowing, a shrinking of human capabilities. So again, there's a lot one could say about this, but basically through the process of factory work, people were engaged in repetitive tasks under brutal conditions, living in poor conditions of housing and so on, and, and his view of production ought to be as a process where people can develop themselves, can <coughs> develop their skills, can develop their capabilities, can develop their sensibilities. But the thing about capitalism was that it tended to narrow the range of people's talents, narrow the range of people's capabilities. So there was an irony. On the one hand, capitalism produced lots of goods, but also produced a poverty of, uh, in people, not just a physical poverty, which was very evident, but, but an existential poverty. So, so Marx looked forward to a world in which people could engage in production, but under circumstances of their own choosing. So he said that people should be able to go fishing in the morning, talk philosophy in the afternoon, make a table in the evening. And that, and that people would be able to develop themselves in, in a much more rounded manner through producing the world in that way. And he had a very sort of uh, um, optimistic notion of, of how human history might pan out. Central to Marx's work was the notion of a mode of production. So he saw human history as a shift in a series of modes of production and the latest was, was capitalist mode of production, but he, he, um, he looked at a number of others. And, and he defined a mode of production in a theoretical sense um, as a, in the following ways. He said a mode of production was made up of technical means of producing things. So the level of technology that people had... Um, whether it was stone tools on the one hand or, or factory looms for producing textiles on the other. So a mode of production was made up of, of the technical means of production. It was also made up of, of what he called the relations of production, um, by which he meant the social relations surrounding production. So he would ask questions like, does everyone in society do the same thing how developed are their are divisions of labour? Are these developed by gender, by age, by class? So the, the capitalist society, Western society in the 19th century, was, was very much ordered by both gender and class. There was a division of labour between men and women. There was a division of labour between the aristocracy that didn't particularly labour very much at all, owned the means of production land. Um, the middle classes who engaged in commerce and banking and those sorts of things, and the working classes who actually made things. Um, and he, he said unless one understood the relations of production... Um, in different social circumstances, we wouldn't be able to understand how a mode of production worked. And lastly, he was interested in the relation of distribution, which links into what I'll talk about next week, which is the question of who benefits from production. So one of the ironies about 
capitalism is, is the people doing most of the producing, the working classes benefit least from production. So how is society's product divided up? He, he defined a number of different modes of production, um, which have some resonances today, even though we wouldn't really accept them. The first of his modes of production, which he saw as historically first, um, was what he called primitive communism. Um, this was a, a, a mode of production by people that we would now term hunters and gatherers, um, where there was a division, if there was a division of labour, it was by gender and age. Um, women tend to gather, men tend to hunt, um, older people do slightly different things to younger people, but by and large there's very little ownership, everyone has access to the means of production, to the, 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 the physical things that are needed to produce, and to the product. The product gets um, divided out equally. The, he, his next mode of production, historically speaking, it was what he called the ancient mode of production. Um, these were the worlds of, of Greece and Rome, which he saw, many others would see, as, as based on slavery. So a lot of the basic production of agriculture and craft products was done by slaves, who obviously didn't own anything. Um, and, and the product was distributed to the citizens of Greece, the citizens of Rome, who were in a, a, a minority, um, but who benefited, who didn't have to engage very much in, in physical production. His next mode of production, historically speaking, was feudalism. Um, this was a manorial-based um, class society in which the aristocracy was dominant. The aristocracy owned the land. Um, because the production of food was the major form of production. There wasn't very much craft production. Um, the aristocracy owned the land. The serfs worked the land and were, were obligated to give tribute to the aristocracy. Um, and there was a small amount of craft production and, and exchange. And then this world broke down um, in the... In the 13th and 14th centuries to, to give the rise of capitalism where the middle classes for the first time become as important as the aristocracy. The middle classes own industry, they own the banking systems, they own the financial instruments. So, and, and there is now a threefold class division, the aristocracy, the middle classes and the working classes. Um, the workers do all the work. Um, and the middle classes and, and the arist aristocrats benefit, this is Marx's view. And he looked forward to um, future modes of production, first of socialism um, and then of communism, where the, the, the product, he, he wanted to harness the sort of physical capabilities of capitalism, but in a, in a society that was much more equal and less class-based. So he looked forward to the decline of capitalism and the rise of, of then socialism and communism. And we won't go into that because that's a, that's a huge area in its own, own right. So Marx, as I said, Marx's thought has had an enormous impact both positively and, and negatively. Um, inherent in Marx's view is a view of history where there are periods of stability um, and then periods of rapid change. So, for instance, the decline of, of feudalism 
um, he saw came about through a crisis of feudalism which then gave rise to, to um, capitalism relatively rapidly transformed society. And, and these ideas of stability and change were taken up by um, one of the few either archaeologists or anthropologists who self-identified as, as, as a Marxist. This is a guy called Gordon Child. Child has a spelt child with an E on the end of his name. And, and he tried to understand the archaeological record through a Marxist notion. Um, and Child saw three revolutions in human history the second two being predicated on the first. And these are revolutions in production that then had implications for all other aspects of society. The, the most basic revolution that Child saw was what he called the Neolithic Revolution, um, with the start of farming in places like the Near East. Child dated it to about seven or 8,000 years ago. We, if we now believe in the Neolithic Revolution, not everyone does. We dated a bit earlier. So that was, in Child's view, that was the point at which human societies went from a dependency on nature um, through either hunting or gathering to the control of nature through domesticating plants and animals, through growing crops in fields, through, through keeping animals. And he saw... Um, farming as a much more controlled and regulated way of life that as I say people came to control their environment people came to control their food sources which then had a number of different implications um, that people were able to settle down they no longer needed to, to move around in order to hunt and gather once they settled down the population tended to rise um, there were larger numbers of people, larger settlements, but also because people were settled and didn't need to carry everything they owned around with them, they could develop more um, sophisticated forms of housing, of pottery, of, of tools, of a whole range of things. So settled society came about in child's view as a result of the Neolithic. The Neolithic eventually gave rise to urban societies, so people gathered together in large urban environments, first of all in places like Mesopotamia about five and a half thousand years ago, then shortly after that in Egypt, and later on in other places, the Indus Valley, um, Greece, China, and so on. And, and that the urban revolution was um, possible because of the surpluses generated by agriculture. Urban life came about when agriculture developed a, or produced a sufficient surplus in order for some people within society to exist without engaging in agriculture. And they could specialise either in craft production, so pottery, weaving, those sorts of things, or they be could become ritual specialists, priests, um, bureaucrats, various different things. Um, and, and the urban society saw the rise of, of class society, a difference between the, the people out in the fields producing and the, the, the people in the towns who, who organised production and, and redistribution. And, and very eventually, um, the urban revolution gave rise to the last revolution that Child identified, which was the Industrial Revolution, which was obviously relatively recent. Um, 
which was a sort of uh, an, an exaggeration of um, the, the aspects of the urban revolution which allowed for, for mass production for more and more people not to be engaged in agriculture um, but to be engaged in things like craft production, government administration, those sorts of things. So, so for Child taking his inspiration from Marx, human history was powered by changes in the nature of production, the nature of redistribution, and that the, the two subsequent revolutions, um, the urban and the industrial, were based on the, the Neolithic, which he saw as the, as the primary revolution, which allowed, allowed all others. Um, and these notions have, have come through into, through into archaeology. Um, this is a, a slide taken from Renfrew and Barnes' book, Archaeology, which is um, a slide essentially uh, a um, reproduction of, of Child's ideas um, in the late 20th, early 21st century, and, and Renfrew and Barn divide human society into bands, segmentary societies, chiefdoms and states. So bands are hunters and gatherers, the pre-farming people. Segmentary societies are people who engage in farming but are relatively egalitarian. The chiefdoms are people who engage in farming but are much less egalitarian. There are, are products flowing up from the, the commoners to the chiefs. And then there's the rise of states, urban society, and later on, um, the rise of the urban world. So, uh, sorry, the, the industrial world. So, and, and um, I won't go through all of this, but they work out the uh, archaeological implications of these various different forms of life. So if one digs up a site, um, you can look at the characteristic of a site and tend to... And to um, uh, you know, assign it to one of these phases and obviously there are all sorts of problems here of being too mechanistic in our understanding of, of human history and its changes um, and as I'll say later on people have critiqued this notion but it's still, it's still reasonably alive and well in, in many areas of archaeology the notion that human history is progressive and that progress is, is fueled. Um, by changes in the nature of production. Within, uh, within anthropology, sorry, um, there have been a number of people who've espoused Marxist thought, um, but they've tried to rejig Marxist thought to include a much um, richer set of material derived from anthropology. Um, Marxist notion of mode of production, as, as I was saying before, was based very much on the nature of production and its changes over time. Um, whereas Marxists of the middle 20th century, um, people like Maurice Godelier, Godelier is spelt G-O-D-E-L-I-E-R, um, he and others tried to, to develop what he called a, they called a lineage-based mode of production for Africa, um, which looked much rather less at the basic nature of production of, of things, but was more interested in the production of people, the reproduction <coughs> of society. So, so for these anthropological Marxists, French Marxists, 
they were interested in how kinship was regulated. Um, they were interested in how notions, uh, uh, how marriage arrangements were made. And they felt that, that in many societies in Africa and elsewhere, uh, <clears throat> that society was organised not so much around physical production, but more around the reproduction of people, which in turn led to an emphasis on control over marriage and alliance and, and um, links between different um, forms of, of lineage. And, and what they became interested in, and I'll pick up this um, more next week when I talk about exchange, was the links between the exchange of people in marriage and the exchange of gifts and, and commodities between groups. So rather than, than primarily emphasise production, they became more interested in an emphasis on exchange and the links between the exchange of people in marriage and the exchange of, of objects. And like I say, I'll, I'll talk more about this, um, this next week. There are also... Um, non-Marxist strands of thought um, which look rather like Marxism um, so it's interesting that some of the critiques of Marxism uh, tend to echo uh, what Marx himself said and the major set of um, people interested in production from a non-Marxist point of view were evolutionary anthropologists and, and archaeologists who started off in the later 19th century and then saw a resurgence in the middle of the 20th century. So the late 19th century anthropologists were people like E.B. Tyler, um, T-Y-L-O-R, um, and uh, uh, who was based here at the Pitt Rivers um, from 1883 onwards, and, and Lewis Henry Morgan in the United States. Um, both of them came up with uh, a, an evolutionary notion of society, which again looks very much like this one. Um, it, 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 society was seen to move from um, simple forms, hunter-gatherer forms, to state forms, and their basic analogy was, was with um, biological evolution. So biological evolution is, is seen in a Darwinian sense to shift from single-celled organisms like amoeba to eventually multi-organed um, organisms like ourselves with a complex division of labour internally. Um, so people like Tyler and Morgan made a definite parallel between um, biological evolution and human evolution. Um, they were not directly influenced by Marx, but they were also interested in um, notions of production um, and notions of distribution. So, so these ideas of band, tribe, chieftain and state very much come out of this 19th century evolutionary background, um, which saw a resurgence in the middle of the 20th century um, with people like Marshall Salins, um, whose surname is spelt S-A-H-L-I-N-S, and Elman Service, who came up again with, with um, notions that look very much like this. Um, and, and, and much like Child, although, again, they weren't influenced by him, they would see the shift from hunters and gatherers to farmers as, as being um, the most important. From the 1960s onwards, 
um, both this rather crude set of Marxist notions and the evolutionary anthropologist, which, uh, anthropology which echoed it started to come apart. People started to critique these ideas and think differently. Um, and given the centrality of notions of hunter-gatherers and farmers, um, the critique, it's no surprise that the critique started um, with the differences between hunter-gatherers and farmers. So um, there was a famous conference in the early 1960s which was published in a volume called Man the Hunter, um, and this started to rethink the nature of, of um, uh, hunting and gathering societies. And, and a number of, of anthropological studies of, of hunter-gatherer societies showed them as, as being rather different to the classical notion of hunter-gatherers as being poor, at the mercy of their environments, um, lacking control in their lives. So studies of people um, in places like the Kalahari Desert, a very difficult environment um, where the Kung bush people, K-U-N-G, Kung, um, even though they were living in a very difficult physical environment, um, anthropological studies showed that people only engaged in food and activities that resulted in, in uh, getting food for about 20 hours a week. Uh, for a lot of the time, people engaged in social activities. Uh, they played, they sung, they danced, they engaged in ritual. So rather than hunters and gatherers having a very difficult existence in which they needed to work a lot in order to make a living, hunters and gatherers were seen as, and this is Marshall Salin's phrase, the original affluent society. People had very few physical needs, but they were able to meet those needs very easily. Um, and ironically, given the title of the volume, Man the Hunter, um, it was actually showed that women's gathering was always much more important um, than male hunting. So women provided the majority of the food. Um, once, once you could see hunters and gatherers as living relatively easily and well, even in difficult society, even in difficult environments, the idea of farming became a lot more challenging. So in the old notions of Marx and Child, farming was a great leap forward. It gave people much more security in terms of their food. People were more easily able to live. Um, but once one started to, to develop notions that, that hunter-gatherers could live relatively easily and well um, the, on, on relatively little labour, the question immediately arose, why would anyone adopt farming? So in the older model, you adopted farming because it was better. It, it, it had a whole range of advantages. In this newer 1960s model... Um, there was a much more, uh, much more emphasis on why should one adopt farming. And, and it must be said that nobody's ever really come up with a totally convincing notion. If, if we compare hunter-gatherers and farmers, by and large, hunter-gatherers need to less, work less than farmers. Their levels of health and nutrition are often better. Farmers need to work harder. They live in larger groups. They have more diseases they often die earlier because they're worn out. Um, 
So there have been a range of different attempts to, to understand um, why people move towards farming. And often those attempts revolve around notions of social competition. So farmers adopted farming be, not because it was an easier, more secure way of life, but that at various parts of the world, at various different times, people started to compete in terms of things like gift exchange. They started to give each other um, craft products, food, various types of things. And that over time, this ratcheted up, that, that people started to give each other more and more stuff. So there was a need eventually to produce more, which led towards more intensive localised forms of production which led towards farming. Um, so farming was, was something that one got drawn into, almost forced into, rather than being something that one adopted um, <clears throat> because it was, it was advantageous. And, and this notion of farming gave a rather different historical trajectory towards farming, that it was seen often that farming, rather than being a sudden revolutionary jump, stopped being hunter-gatherers and started being farmers relatively rapidly. In many parts of the world, for instance, um, in South America, in North America, Africa, Asia, um, the transition between hunter-gathering and farming often took a long time, many thousands of years, and was a slow transition rather than something rapid and was probably fuelled by increasing um, social competition and those sorts of things. Um, also, from the 1980s onwards, there was the critique of the notion of production as a category. Um, so, in, in Marx's view, and indeed in evolutionary views, <coughs> production could be separated off from, say, consumption. Um, people produce things and then later they consume things. Uh, but, but in many societies, many societies for a start don't necessarily have a notion of production as a separate activity. Um, and for many societies, production and consumption well, production, exchange and consumption um, are, are seen to be linked together um, and it's very difficult to, to make a, a, a real distinction between people consuming things and, and um, people producing them. So, so that, for instance, Ituri pygmies, Ituri being spelt I-T-U-R-I, um, call the forests that they live in mother and, and don't feel that they take from the forest, don't feel that they produce, but that the forest gives, in a sense, in the same sense as a human mother might. And that, therefore, the, the key relationship to the forest is not an extractive relationship, a relationship between um, people with needs, that they need to, to go out and, and extract material, food, um, raw materials for shelter, but that the forest will give and that the, the key relationship between um, human beings and their environment is, is a relationship of respect. So, and, and, and that the environment is not necessarily 
an external, a foreign thing, that it may be seen much more in terms of um, a, a, a set of beings or a being that has human attributes that is involved um, intimately within human society. So there is no, we make a distinction between culture on the one hand, the realm of people, and nature on the other hand, the realm of, of plants and animals and, and inanimate objects. But many people in the world don't make that distinction that the distinction between people and things uh, are not easily made. And, and if one starts to complicate relationships between people and things, not separate them, um, then a notion of production is quite hard to sustain, that, that people and, and other entities are, are engaged in a whole series of, of forms of exchange um, forms of interaction and interchange which aren't necessarily people taking um, in a sense that, that we would understand as production. Um, so so a, an anthropological critique um, would say that in many parts of the world people don't have a notion of production and that, and that going back to the 19th century that, that ideas like production that we've come to understand now have very definite historical roots within the industrial revolution, within mass production, within mass consumption and it makes sense for us um, because production, exchange and consumption are separated as I said right at the beginning, by and large, we don't produce stuff. Um, other, people, other people do that. So we can analytically separate production, exchange and consumption. But for many people in the world, that separation makes no sense. And therefore, as archaeologists and anthropologists, we need to be sensitive to the ways in which people think about the world, think about the ways in which they engage in the world. And if people don't have a notion of production, then maybe we need to think about how we um, use such a term and whether it is in fact useful. And I'll just give you a, a brief example along these lines. Um, I'm going to look very briefly at a group of people in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. This is Papua New Guinea, the main um, mainland island of Papua New Guinea here with a series of, of offshore islands and we're going to look at an area there's this big mountain chain down the centre of Papua New Guinea and in the south of the, of the highland area um, there are a series of, of groups living, one of whom are called the Huli H-U-L-I who engage in forms of production and forms of exchange these are some um, Huli men, all dressed up, actually, to uh, for the Pope's visit to the highlands of Papua New Guinea, but they got all their gear on, um, birds of paradise, feathers, um, possum skin hats, um, various bits of marsupial, and, and this guy here has a series of, of um, little bamboo sticks, which don't appear to us to be particularly... <coughs> striking or important but for those of, of, who know the codes of, of the highlands of Papua New Guinea each of these sticks designates a, a large feast that this man has been able to sponsor 
um, and he's sponsored lots of feasts to which many people would have come. He's been able to feed them primarily on pigs, um, but also on a whole range of other things, uh, of root crops, of, of fruit, and a whole series of things. And each of these exchanges um, were uh, part of his attempt to develop himself as someone politically important within the highlands of New Guinea through giving out a whole range of different <coughs> products. But these things needed to be produced in the first place. The central animal, as I said in these exchanges, is the pig. Um, but the pig and pig herds need to be supported by the production of root crops. And the production of root crops, in turn, uh, requires considerable human labour. So this is a series, this is an aerial photographic shot um, of one of the swamps in the valleys in the Huli area. And to give you some sense of scale, this is a house here which is about 30 metres long. So this is a huge area of um, cultivated swamp where people are taking water from a natural river you can just about see the sort of canalised river running through here. Um, they've taken this water and created a whole series of little drainage ditches. Um, and in the middle of the drainage ditches are mounds of earth. And on those mounds of earth are um, grown root crops like sweet potato and, and taro and so on. And in the wetter bits down the bottom, um, other crops are grown. These swamps have been cultivated for at least 500 years um, and their histories are understood to some degree. Here are people cultivated digging out ditches using digging sticks and so on. These are some of the, the, the root crops that are grown in the, uh, in the swamps. Here's a dead pig um, fed on the root crops going off to a, a feast somewhere. Um, and this is a map of, of the same swamp. Um, and what you can see is that um, some areas are much more densely covered with, with ditches and, and mounds than others. The central area um, is less well covered. This is because these are the older areas, areas that have been cultivated for uh, probably at least 500 years. Um, and... Each of the major drainage ditches has a name, and each of these um, ditches is the name of a person, um, the person who caused the ditch to be dug. So these are physical sets of ditches that are there to produce root crops, there to produce pigs, but they are also a social map of the people who live in the area, and they are the history of the Huli people written on the landscape. So each of these um, big ditches which are named after people, those people are remembered in genealogies, in kinship, and, and, those, and the genealogies in this area quite remarkably go back at least 500 years um, so as I was saying before, the Huli wouldn't make any real distinction between human beings on the one hand um, and the means of production on the other, the swamp. The swamp isn't so much a means of production to them. It's, it's a social map, it's a map of, of 
of where they come from, who they are today. This is an area where warfare is endemic. There's a lot of warfare. The ultimate act of victory, if you defeat a neighbouring group, the ultimate act of victory is to fill in somebody else's ditches, which is to erase them and their genealogy from the landscape. That may not seem a, a particularly aggressive act to us, but would seem incredibly aggressive to the Hooli. Um, and the point I'd like to... Uh, I'll, I'll come on to that next week. The point I'd like to make here is that there is a seamlessness between the productive capability of the Hooli, the, the physical digging out of the ditches, the planting of the root crops, um, through to the feeding of the pigs... These things are linked in turn to human genealogies, to human linkages, to human kinship. Um, and they're also linked to a whole series of power relationships um, to do with feasting, to do with often male aggrandizement, um, men trying to, to raise themselves up in the, in the public eye. One could say a lot about the gender relationships here. Uh, but, the, but the point I'm trying to make here is that it's difficult um, analytically to use a straightforward notion of production um, such as that developed by Marx. I mean, people are producing things, they're growing things, but they wouldn't consider themselves as engaging in production in the sense that they're engaging in a form of activity which is divided off from the rest of their life they would see a seamlessness between um, kinship, between exchange, between identity, social standing, and the growing of root crops. So, production is central. It's a central concept in both archaeology and anthropology. Um, but like all our concepts, it's one that is both useful and dangerous. And we need to think uh, about the circumstances under which we might deploy a notion of, of production, um, how we might uh, critique this notion, um, and, and how far uh, ideas like production, exchange and consumption divide the social world up in a way um, that the good way, the good aspect of dividing the world up is that it makes the world more analytically understandable. The bad thing about dividing the world up is that it does violence to the world as people themselves would understand it. So as with any of these large concepts, um, it is both useful and dangerous, and it's up to you to think in any one context how far one will want to deploy a notion like production. Production, um, as I've hinted, is intimately linked to exchange, um, and it's ex exchange that I'll talk about next week. <clears throat>